there is going to be those voices that, again, say, this is just breaking the law for no reason. You should always stick to the rules because we have those rules in a democracy. That is Hig researcher Teresa Zuger, ladies and gentlemen. In this episode of Exploring Digital Spheres, we're talking about digital disobedience. Civically disobedient. Civilly disobedient. <laughs> we're going to talk about the digital equivalents of things like the civil rights and ban the bomb movements about how people deliberately break the law for a specific ideological conviction. It's not something that is only in your personal particular interest. We're going to be talking about Phil Zimmerman, Edward Snowden and Aaron Schwartz. Here is our conversation. You, uh, your, your research um, that we're going to be discussing is about uh, c- civil, civil disobedience. Um, I thought maybe it could be fun to ask you, is there many times that you have been civically disobedient? Civilly disobedient. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Actually, um, not so many times. So I didn't come to this topic uh, from practice, necessarily. It was more um, that I found it really interesting that civil disobedience is focusing on the exception of rules. Because um, a democracy or a state usually gives itself rules and laws, and civil disobedience occurs when those laws are broken. And that I found very fascinating, to think about this exception rather than thinking about how things usually work or thinking about the commonplaces. Did you come from any tech background? What kind of a background did you have that you ended up here at the HIG? Uh, so I studied uh, philosophy and media studies. Media studies was my major and German language and literature in Cologne. And uh, since I finished my degree or even before that, I kind of knew that there is a lot of interesting media, like the film and television, But for me, it was always the internet. It was always that because I felt that there's where where new things are happening and this is really going to change everything. So uh, I really wanted to to focus on the internet and I did my master's uh, thesis uh, master thesis on an internet issue, but I was really searching for more people and more connections to to learn about the internet and learn about different issues, how it changes politics, how it changes how people socialize. But I didn't have a real tech background. It was always more uh, this mix between philosophy and media theory that like, I never could really decide between the two. It was always um, merging both yeah, parts of humanities. Now, we're, we're going to, of course, talk about your specific research themes, which is focusing on the digital ex- aspect of civil disobedience. But maybe uh, before we start off, could you maybe explain what civil disobedience actually means? What, what kind of examples do we have from history? Um, very good showcases of civil disobedience. I mean, you're, you're coming from a political theory background as well. So you must have had some very interesting things to to study before. Of course, there's good examples. And I think a lot of people think of the civil rights movement in America or think about Gandhi or Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement. So that's the kind of the, the 
important figures of civil disobedience that people kind of think of, but we also can can go a little bit closer to Germany as a home, where uh, the protests against nuclear weapons were a big thing, or other protests um, like Stuttgart 21, um, where sit-ins and blockades, on, uh, blockades and uh, other types of civil disobedience occurred, and we kind of have that in our memory, and we kind of Uh, immediately usually think about uh, road blockages or sit-ins when we hear civil disobedience. But we have to acknowledge that civil disobedience is not these practices. It's really more an abstract concept. So first of all, I think it's important to say that it's an intentional act. Civil disobedience doesn't happen um, by mistake. You know that you're doing this um, Yeah, intentionally, and you're intentionally doing something in protest that is uh, in conflict with the law. And usually it's a principle-based political act. So that means that you have certain principles that you um, want to stand up for, like principles of justice, for, for instance, or demo democratic principles, and you want to defend those. And that's your reason to do civil disobedience. It's not just any reasons. It's not just an opinion that you like, just had from one moment to another, but usually it's very strongly connected to political principles. Uh, the next thing, it's not something that is only in your personal particular interest. So it's not to make you richer. If you rob a bank, you could try to claim <laughs> that it's civil disobedience, but nobody really would accept that because it's pretty much only in your personal gain to do that. And civil disobedience usually is not. Um, no, yeah. definitely is not. <laughs> can, I, can I ask maybe, yes. like, for example, what, what is the difference between somebody being politically and civilly engaged and somebody being civilly disobedient? I would say the, the huge difference is that uh, civil disobedience is in conflict with the law. So you cross a line where a law is broken. If you're engaged... Um, you may be demonstrating, but demonstrations are covered within our civil rights. Uh, and that is super important to acknowledge that we're not breaking the law, we're actually realizing civil rights if we're demonstrating. It's not really uh, a protest in the form of civil disobedience if we do that. Could you maybe explain whether it's digital civil disobedience or regular disobedience? Uh, who, who, is it, who is it directed against? So that's a super interesting question because it's actually one thing that is changing. So in a very traditional way, you would think that civil disobedience is always directed against a state and specifically against a particular law. Um, but as history shows and as more recent examples of civil disobedience show, um, civil disobedience can also be directed against a company, for instance, um, against an international company, also um, against um, multinational institutions. So the like target points of civil disobedience have changed drastically. Yeah, so it's a very interesting issue. And um, in some examples, it's even more more uh, complicated because things like um, discrimination are addressed or like uh, um, sexism, which is 
not really connected to one institution or one uh, stakeholder of power, but it's something that is directed towards whole society. So this question of like, who, what is civil disobedience ad addressing gets, uh, yeah, the answers to that get more and more diverse. We're, of course, living in very interesting times. There's lot, lots of things happen, of, happening, lots of protests and demos. But at the same time, we also have the Internet. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how these two nowadays get fused together and what kind of interesting examples you've seen in your research of digital civil disobedience. So um, currently, um, I would say that just in very, in very general terms, a lot of ways of civil disobedience engage digital media in a new way. So um, it becomes more and more important to be digitally connected also in civil disobedient actions. Um, but besides this um, new engagement of digital technologies in civil disobedience, there is examples where actually the action taken um, that kind of commits the civil disobedience or like uh, realizes the civil disobedience uh, is digital. And it's not like this is a mainstream phenomena, I have to admit that, but in my PhD, I looked at very specific singular cases in history um, and particularly in the history of the internet where uh, these cases occurred. One very good example um, and it's not maybe a super common one, uh, is the one of Phil Zimmerman, who uh, created uh, PGP. Um, so it's an encryption software that he created in uh, the uh, 90s. And at that time, encryption wasn't for civil society. It was only a military thing to have strong encryption to uh, send messages um, yeah, which are kind of encrypted for your enemies. Um, and what he did is he kind of like took existing uh, methods um, and realized a tool um, that could like would allow civil society to encrypt their messages, to encrypt emails. Like we, we pretty much all know it and we um, probably all used it in some way. Um, and at that time... Um, encryption was um, not legally, um, it was not legal to export encryption because it was still kind of uh, qualified as a weapon for an American law at that time. So when um, the code that he wrote kind of entered the internet and was spread across the internet, that was uh, against the law and brought him a lawsuit, which uh, in the end... Uh, he like he didn't he wasn't convicted because they couldn't actually prove that it was him who kind of spread the um, the code. But he um, even though he never really actively framed it as civil disobedience, I think it is a very good example because he um, clearly described how he's doing this uh, for democracy, how he definitely wanted to um, ensure people have the right to communicate in privacy and, um, yeah, to, to keep that as a democratic right. Yeah. And now in the 90s, when, like, slowly people start using the internet, there's only a couple people who may be uh, capable of actually breaking the law on the internet, whereas maybe nowadays there is way more people who are digitally savvy and knowing what they're doing. At the same time, I'm thinking um, since the 90s, 
um, you might you might have way more laws and regula regulations right now regulating the internet that could potentially be broken that interfere with privacy and the way we freely can use the internet uh, do you see there is like an increase in civil disobedience on the internet since the 90s do you think it gets less worse do you think there's a more tight control on what we're able to do on the internet how, how do you see this sort of playing out uh, recently I would be careful to say that the knowledge uh, about digital technology has increased so much that now more people are equipped to be digitally, civilly disobedient. I don't think so. Uh, I think that a lot of people are quite good at using digital technology, but uh, especially when it comes to civil disobedience, it's... Uh, way more often about being really savvy with technology and actually building something, creating something, a software or um, a platform that helps you to do something that creates a new type of political freedom or contests a certain restriction that there is on the internet. Um, so... I don't, still don't see that this uh, digital type of civil disobedience is a very mass phenomena or a very common thing. I think it's still very much reserved to very privileged uh, yeah, elite people. And, uh, and that is a problem, that it's not a very democratic practice today. Yeah, because if, if you compare uh, Rosa Parks, who can sit on the bus, I mean, that requires a great act of bravery. But technically, it's not very difficult to do, right? You can sit on the bus where you're not supposed to sit. Or, I don't know, you can turn up in a protest somewhere where you're not supposed to be. But you're right in saying, like, making encryp encryption software is kind of a difficult thing to do. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, this doesn't mean that it's... Um, less legitimate at some times to uh, practice civil disobedience, particularly in this digital way. For instance, Edward Snowden was in a very privileged position to have access to this kind of information that he later uh, published. And there, there wasn't a huge collection of people who could have done the same thing. And so um, this very particular position is not a good reason to say then you shouldn't commit civil disobedience. And I think he's also a very good example of how a singular person can do something which is very much in a collective spirit. Like this was definitely not for his own good <laughs> to leak these documents. And, and, and also, I think the, the reactions on what he did are still very much divided, right? I mean, there's still lots of people who think that what he did was an absolute crime. He needs to be put to justice for it. And there's people who think he was, he's a massive hero. Yes, very much. I think even um, it's very interesting how different nations kind of take different sides on this matter, how it actually become a quite international question if what he did is a terrorist act or an act of civil disobedience. In our, in our preparation for, for the interview, uh, you brought up uh, Aaron Schwartz, uh, who, who I, I had heard of vaguely. You know, I, I've seen a video on Reddit coming by about him once. But he, he's actually an incredibly important and also in some ways 
very difficult person to grasp in this whole civil disobedience debate because, it, in, to my opinion, he did break the law somewhere, and, and, but he did, he's also a major activist, but maybe one of his deeds could be seen as criminal and some of his other perspectives as, as politically uh, engaging. Maybe you can shine some light on what he did exactly and why he's such an important figure to talk about. Yes, definitely. Aaron Schwartz is a super interesting case. And I think he's a very good example of how digital forms of civil disobedience um, are very often infrastructural. And by that, I mean, they're kind of constructing a new digital infrastructure that brings out or yeah, allows new actions to happen. And in his case, he uh, created a little software code that downloaded a lot of academic papers for, from um, the platform JSTOR, which holds a lot of academic papers. Because normally for the JSTOR, you have to pay for the articles. Exactly. And he downloaded quite an extensive part of the articles they have. Uh, he didn't publish the articles, though. He didn't get to that. Um, and but he did break the terms of use of the MIT of this guest account commitment that he kind of had signed, uh, and he also like um, yeah heard the the terms of use of JSTOR itself, um, and that brought him horrible like a really horrifying uh, lawsuit. He was um, shadowed by the FBI for quite a long time even before that. Actually, JSTOR decided to like freely publish most of the articles that uh, Aaron um, downloaded, and they also took back their um, allegations against him. So from that side, um, there was no consequences to be hoped for uh, anymore. But actually, uh, the state didn't take back the lawsuit, and he was, uh, I don't know exactly, but it was like, like a huge... Um, like penalty that he was looking at like a million to pay back and years in prison yeah, 30 years or something. yeah it was it was really uh, a very harsh punishment that um they kind of uh, had in mind for him do, do you know why the state had this idea why did it make such a big point out of it even if jstor didn't push for it um, I think they wanted to uh, put an example. Like they wanted to show that this type of uh, savvy use of, of technology to evade copyright law, and in this case it was the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, that is a very uh, outdated law, I would say, uh, and uh, one with very harsh punishments uh, in the U.S. jurisdiction. Um, yeah, and I think they were trying to set an example, but also they found that, in a way, quite similar to Martin Luther King, Aaron Schwartz was uh, dangerous because he was a very charismatic person, and he um, wrote a manifesto a couple months before um, his um, yeah his suicide that he committed in the end. And in this manifesto, he asked. Uh, other people to help to free academic knowledge to make it as accessible to other people and um, he was very convinced that the copyrights laws were an unjust idea because they were restricting um, knowledge that was publicly paid for publicly funded from the people who actually paid their taxes and paid for it 
And so he was very much against this and wanted to reform copyright law, um, but he also wanted to, to take steps himself. And that's uh, what he tried to do. Actually, he, he gave back also all the articles. So in the end, like... It was very uh, hard to uh, kind of justify or understand the state's actions against him. And it's a very tragic and sad end of that story, definitely. Um, but I think he made a very, very important and strong uh, point with his action, like how... Um, like how absurd it is that so much knowledge is restricted to a very elite circle of people. And um, yeah, so um, it's a very, very uh, uh, extreme case. Uh, and I would definitely call it a case of civil disobedience, even though um, he could never really show what he actually intended to do with it. He might just wanted to have used all the papers to himself. But um Yeah, it was still um, a very strong political act. I think what, what, one thing that I find very interesting about this whole uh, civil disobedience is the fact that there is, or I think the potential of a lot of controversy. I mean, obviously you're trying to attract the attention of your fellow citizens, but lots of people are not going to agree with you, right? So there's going to be lots of people in the end who are saying like, no, what you're doing, breaking the law is actually wrong. And we don't want to move in that direction, you know? So, so what, what, what is the kind of results that we see from, from um, past civil disobedience, maybe for the good and the bad? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point, because um, civil disobedience seems to be clearer in societies in retrospect. So uh, with the civil rights movement and um, Martin Luther King, we all agree today that he is a hero of civil disobedience and that what he did, his strategies were super important for America and for yeah, also an example for other cultures to change and to create more equality. Um, but at that time, we have to realize that uh, Martin Luther King was uh, highly... Uh, like seen as a highly dangerous person. Like he was um, watched by the FBI. He was pressured to commit suicide. Like there's clear evidence that he was seen as one of the major enemies of the American state because people felt that what he had to say was very powerful, was very changing and disrupting to the American society. And it truly was for very good reasons. Um, but there was no agreement at that time that this is uh, a well-justified civil disobedience. And that is, yeah, to keep that in mind is super important when we look at examples of civil disobedience nowadays, because there is going to be those voices that, again, say, this is just breaking the law for no reason. You should always stick to the rules because we have those rules in a democracy and um, that's how it is. You, you shouldn't change that. And... Um, Yeah, it's so. Uh, this is the tricky part. Uh, that's where civil disobedience needs to go extra miles to make that difference and to strengthen its arguments that it is actually supporting democratic ideas rather than undermining them. That was Teresa Zuger. If you want to know more about her specific research, check out the notes of the show. Information on the Humboldt Institute, their future events and other research projects, you can find more at hiig.de. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, if you are 20 minutes wiser about the internet, let us know. Send us a message or leave us a nice review on iTunes. This was Exploring Digital Spheres. Catch you on the flip side.